Well, if you were here last Sunday, you know that I wasn't. Um, so I, uh, I was on a missions trip, actually, ministering to um, beach chairs and cabanas on the shores of, of Mexico. And we shared Jesus with them, thankfully and gladly. No, we, uh, my wife and I got away for a week, and it was a fantastic time. So um, Alex, our, our youth pastor, was here, and uh, I heard fantastic things, not only about the worship, but about how God w- had prepared him and, and led him to share with you the importance of silence and solitude in our lives over the course of January, we talked about needing a jump start. We looked at relationships and finances and addictions, and then he finished it off by talking about how it is we often need a jump start when it comes to silence and solitude, and how it is that the world is so good, the world is so good in getting us involved in this rat race that we get so encumbered by life that we fail to recognize the importance the spiritual and physical importance of silence and solitude and how God oftentimes chooses to speak in those moments, right? So anyways, I'm so thankful for Pastor Alex and his willingness to stand in the fray and to share those words, so thank you for that. And uh, today, today we're venturing into a new series called Drinking the Cup. I'm going to jump into that here in just a minute, but before we do, I, I want to kind of just kind of lay the groundwork for February. Now, February is an interesting month, right? We're in January, we're kind of coming off a little bit of the Christmas high, and then February hits, and usually it's a lot colder than it is today, right? The sun's not shining as much, and then Valentine's Day, you either love it or hate it, right? And then February is always a constant reminder of the fact that the Vikings will never be in the Super Bowl. So it's just it's this it's this constant onslaught of disappointment and discouragement. And February can oftentimes be a very down and um, kind of despair-driven season. That's very true. It's very true. And it might be true for some of you here uh, today. And uh, so one of the things that we're wanting to do is to just remind people in our church and in our community, hey, that we're here. Not only that we're here, that we care and love, not only about everybody in this room, but then everyone in our community, but that God adores and cherishes each and every single one of us. And he pursues us with passion and with vigor. And that the most beautiful representation of that is his son, Jesus Christ. How when there was no way to have a right relationship with God, he sent his son, Jesus, to die for you and me. And now if that isn't evidence of his unrelenting love, then I don't know what is. So we want to get that message home. You are not alone. You are not alone. That God is close to the brokenhearted and that he comforts those who are crushed in spirit. So we're wanting to send that message. You may have seen that sign as you, as you came in today. We want to send that message to people that are driving by just as a little reminder. And then over the course of the month, we're going to unpack other ways that we're tangibly reminding ourselves, one another, and our community that we're here and that God is ever-present because this can be a difficult time. And because it can be a difficult time, we are also venturing into the series, Can You Drink the Cup? Can You Drink the Cup? Now, or Drinking the Cup, but it's inspired by a particular book that I spent time 
reading. Now, I get inspired, just as you do when you prepare things, you know, I get inspired by a whole myriad of stuff, you know. I believe all truth is, is God's truth and that the world twists and distorts what God really desires to be uh, for His glory. Um, and so we can find, we can find um, uh, evidence of God in all sorts of different ways and shapes, but if we want to always be sure of what God says, something that is not twisted, that is not distorted, is God's Word. And so we're going to venture into God's Word. We're going to unpack what God's Word has to say to us when it comes to drinking the cup. But inspiration for me in this instance and for this series it came from a book by Henry Nouwen. Now, some of you may or may not have heard of Henry Nouwen. He's passed. He passed back in the mid-90s, but he was a, a priest and a prolific author. And he wrote a series of books, and the last book that he read, or wrote, rather, um, was uh, Can You Drink the Cup? I read that, and it was just formative for me. It provided a lot of um, opportunities for me to think and to consider God and my relationship with Him and my relationship with life and others in ways that I hadn't before. Now, I am not doing a synopsis of that book, either today or for this series, but rather it's inspired me to do what it is that we should all do when God inspires us is to go to His Word. So I went to God's Word, and I said, God, I want you to interact now with me. But you see, God's Word is living and active. It is organic. It isn't static. It isn't something that was written a number of years ago, and like Harry Potter is just on a piece of uh, paper. Rather, it is living and active. It is the actual Word of God. And so when we spend time in God's Word, it interacts with us. It shapes us, it molds us, it informs us, it challenges us, it holds us accountable, and it shows us the way in which we should go. That's why it's so important that we invest ourselves in God's Word. And so when we're inspired, we go to God's Word to then see how that inspiration takes shape. So that's what we're going to do here today. We're going to look at this idea of drinking the cup. Now, when we think about a cup, you know, we, uh, different, different images or thoughts can come to our mind. You know, obviously you saw that video prior to me talking, and you saw that that was a uh, glass cup. You know, if I went to your house and I were to say, hey, where are the cups, right? You would point to a cupboard, and it would have uh, a myriad of different shapes and sizes. Now, if we can think of cups in regards to pendulum swings, though, right? You know, if we were to think of cups on one side or the other, we would think that cups, a lot of times in our minds, represent either victory or death. I know that's drastic, but if we can kind of look at that here for a second, victory or death, if we think about it in pendulums. So, in victory, there are different cups that we celebrate. Some of these might resonate with you. Uh, the Davis Cup, for instance. Look at this thing. My goodness gracious. That's ridiculous. That's a, that's a uh, tennis trophy. It's a team tennis trophy. Also, you have the Ryder Cup. Uh, not as <laughs> impressive, but nonetheless, it is uh, for golf, a team, team challenge. And then uh, you have the Stanley Cup for hockey. Uh-huh, Yep. Uh, and then you have the World Cup for soccer. No woo-hoos for, the, for, the, for that one? <laughs> yeah. 
So we, we, we think of cups, right? And, and if we look at pendulums, we think of these cups that represent victory and celebration, and we have images of them holding it up and, and, and uh, having huge smiles on their faces. You know, it's, it's the culmination of a lot of hard work that's ended in victory. But then if we look at the other side of the pendulum, then we can see how the idea of cup oftentimes represents death or doom. So like take, for instance, even um, God's Word. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, it says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. I wouldn't want to drink that. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. But then if we could also look at it from like a kind of a, um, like a world history um, perspective, you know, a cup can represent death such as Socrates' cup, right? Socrates was imprisoned and he was tried for tainting the minds of the youth of Athens. And as, as such, he was given a cup of poison that he was uh, forced to drink. So we see this pendulum swing, victory and death or doom, but we're going to look at in this series over the course of the next four weeks, including today, we're going to look at a much different cup altogether. And specifically, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Now, Matthew is in the New Testament. It's the first book in the New Testament. It's uh, one of the four uh, Gospels. So if you would turn um, or open up your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. There are some in the seats in front of you as well as in your new North Haven app, which I'm hoping you download. It's super free. You can actually access the Bible in that app. It's super cool. Um, you take notes as well, and, um, and then it'll be on the screen. So anyways, we're going to kind of set the stage. So Jesus, prior to this passage here that we're going to look at, he is on his way to Jerusalem. Not quite there yet. He's with his 12 disciples, you know, on this journey in ministry. Uh, and, and now in this moment, he's with his disciples, and specifically, James and John, two of his disciples, they're called the sons of thunder, um, the, the sons of Zebedee, uh, their dad. But their mom now comes into the picture and does what every mom does, Right? You know, I, I, parents, <laughs> you, you understand this, right? So, so I posted this on Facebook a couple weeks ago, but my daughter, I was taking her to school the other day, and I uh, had to talk to the secretary in the school, and I told my daughter this, and so she's 13, and we're, we're pulling into the, and where I was supposed to drop her off, and she says, okay, dad, r- listen, you can go in, but you have to park the car, and you have to wait five minutes. After five minutes, then you can come into the building. Imagine this now. Imagine this. James and John, they're hanging out with Jesus. And their mom comes in. And we see this specific interchange between the mother of James and John, James and John themselves, and then Jesus. And so Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink 
the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, or drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Can you drink the cup? I am going to drink. What is this cup? What is this cup that Jesus is referring to here? Now, this cup is neither a symbol, if we look at those pendulums, it's neither a symbol of victory, nor is it a symbol of death. Rather, it's a symbol of of life, of life. It's a symbol of all of life's joys and sorrows that we often hold, that we lift, and that we drink. So let's imagine this moment. I love taking Scripture and kind of transporting myself into that moment and, and, and think about how people were, were maybe feeling or, or interacting with each other. So if we, can, if we can insert ourselves in this story, we see that, that Jesus is with His disciples and James and John's mother comes in and possibly embarrasses them. And Jesus asks them a straightforward question. He just gets right to the point. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And immediately and without hesitation, what do James and John say? Yes. Oh yeah. But they have no idea what they're saying yes to, do they? No idea. You see, at this point, it's important to understand that at this point in Jesus' ministry, we have the benefit of hindsight. And oftentimes, hindsight actually taints our ability to actually understand what's happening in Scripture. Sometimes we have to think about the way that those that we're reading about are thinking in that moment. And so Jesus, in this ministry, at this time, His disciples believed that He had actually come to overthrow the oppressive Roman government. The Romans had come in and taken over the Israelites in Jerusalem, this holy place. The Romans were in charge. And the Israelites were awaiting and wanting a Messiah, the Messiah that was promised to them from what was their Bible at the time, that is now our Old Testament. They were waiting for this Messiah to come in and to actually you know, kick out the Romans and to, and to be like the kings of old, like King David, actually sitting on an earthly throne. You see, James and John's mom wasn't asking Jesus for some sort of heavenly seating chart. No, she was, she was actually asking for her two sons to sit in some sort of position of power, of like influence or success, or possibly, now I don't want to put words in her mouth, but maybe even wealth. She was expecting Jesus, just as his disciples were, they were expecting Jesus to be sitting on an earthly throne. See, there was not even an inkling, not even an inkling that Jesus' obedience would actually lead him to betrayal, to torture, and then death on a cross. There was not even an inkling of that thought 
in any of their minds. They had no inclination of that, let alone, let alone any inclination that their lives would also be played out in great hardships, in tremendous persecution. And every single one of them, other than Judas, who after he betrays Jesus, takes his own life, the other 11, every single one of them gave their life for Jesus Christ. Were martyred. But in this moment, when Jesus asked, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They enthusiastically and without hesitation say, yeah. It wouldn't be until Jesus rose from the dead having defeated death and then ascending into heaven that they truly understood what they were saying yes to. But can we really, really blame James and John? I mean, isn't that really the desire of every believer's heart to want to be close to Jesus? Isn't that really what they wanted? They just wanted to be where he was. And all those things that Jesus had said over his ministry after his death and resurrection became that much more clear as to what they were saying yes to because Jesus said things like, be a servant instead of a master. He said, seek last place instead of first. And he said, give up your life instead of trying to control other people's lives. And James and John would then soon realize, as would all the other disciples, that each time each time they would have to make a choice. Do I go with Jesus or do I leave? But in that moment, it was really easy to say yes. I came into full-time ministry, full-time pastoral ministry a little over 16 years ago. I'm 43 and I was doing all sorts of different ministry and stuff, but actually being a pastor in a church a little over 16 years ago. And I remember being so excited. I walked into that, that first position, that first calling, thinking it was going to be all rainbows and hallelujahs. I thought, you know, I, I'm just, uh, this is going to be, I'm, gonna, I'm in my sweet spot. You know, God's placed me in my calling, and, uh, and I'm just going to experience so much blessing, and, and people are going to be blessed by me. Now, that's been true, but... I realized really fast, really fast that I was going to experience wounds and uh, scars. And I wasn't always the victim. There were times where I produced wounds and scars in others. It was really easy at the outset for me to be feeling excited and say, yes, I'm totally willing and able to drink this cup. But then when it got hard, it became very difficult to say yes. And now that question is so beautifully profound and holds so much more weight to me than it ever did before. Consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, right before his betrayal, he and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going there specifically to pray. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, the disciples, they're aware that there is uh, some turmoil 
You know, they're, they're aware that the Pharisees, the, basically uh, the, the people who were in charge of, of the Jews, they were not happy with Jesus and that they were trying desperately to pin Jesus on something, right? They were aware that things were, but they still had the hope and expectation that Jesus would be the Messiah that was promised and would overthrow the Roman government and sit on an earthly throne. So they still had no idea that night what was about to happen where Jesus would be betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. But before that happens, before that happens, Jesus, knowing what's coming, knowing that the cross is waiting for him, we have this moment in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 39. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. These were the three that, if you remember, also were invited to experience the transfiguration of Jesus where Jesus revealed his glory. So these were three pretty important people in Jesus' life. He took these three and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, the three of these disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now if you've ever wondered, is it okay to feel sorrow or that you shouldn't feel sorrow, well then you're saying that Jesus was wrong. Are you willing to say that? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The anguish of Jesus is most apparent at this moment. But consider this. We enthusiastically and oftentimes without hesitation, we say yes to the idea of going with Jesus into the hope of the resurrected life, right? There's so much joy. That, without hesitation, yes, I could drink that cup. But are you willing to also Go with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. That becomes a much more challenging question for our lives, doesn't it? Can you drink the cup, Jesus asked. Can you drink the cup? Can, be, can you empty it to the dregs? Can you taste not only the joys, but also the sorrows? We have no problem embracing the joys. We have no problem drinking a cup full of joy, right? I mean, sometimes it may appear very easy to drink the cup. And we find ourselves in, in times of joy when we're on the mountaintop saying enthusiastically and without hesitation, yes, I could totally do that. But what about when we're in the valley? What about when life happens, which it 
all too easily and frequently does, and it fills our cup not with joy, but with sorrow. What's our answer to that question then? When we hold our cup and we look down on it, and we see something that maybe we're not as enthusiastic about, are we still willing and able to say yes? The road that all too quickly becomes very hard where the sorrows seem to come and come. And when Jesus asks us, can you drink this cup? Maybe our response is no. Never. I can't. I can't do that. See, no one here will argue. No one here will argue that when sorrows fill our cup, that it becomes very hard to hold that cup, let alone lift it and drink it. No one will argue with that. And because it can be hard, we hold and we lift and we drink this cup then, the cup full of sorrows, and maybe the only way that we can get ourselves to do it is, is we have some sort of expectation of reward. You know, a, a just reward for enduring the sorrow. But here's the greatest challenge of the spiritual life, and I want you to, I want you to hear this. The greatest challenge of the spiritual life is accepting Jesus' invitation to drink the cup without receiving an expected reward. Can you radically trust God no matter what is in your cup? No matter what? And can you trust Him the same way that Jesus did? Jesus did as He took the cup and He drank it to the full. So that's what we're going to be diving into over the next three weeks. Can you hold the cup, Jesus is asking you? Can you hold the cup of life long enough in your hands in order to experience the joy, no matter how much the sorrow? You see, we're all too often eager to either throw the cup away or gulp it down as fast as we possibly can. But Jesus neither threw that cup away when it was in his hands, nor did he drink it as fast as he can, could to get, to get over it. No, he held it in his hands. He held it in his hands in the garden as he prayed. Not my will, but your will. And what is it that God revealed to him as he held that cup of great sorrow in his hands? God said, my will. Jesus is asking if you can hold that cup. And he's asking if you can lift it. Lift it in community with others. Saying, hey, this is who I am. I'm... I'm I'm not going to fake it. 
I'm not going to try to put on a good face and pretend like everything's okay when I'm holding a cup of sorrow. So instead, I want to say, this is me. I, I need not only a God who will be ever-present, who will be ever-faithful to give hope and peace and joy, but I also need you. I need others to be beside me. And together we can, in unity, as Philippians chapter 2 says, in unity we can lift this cup of life together. And then lastly, Jesus is asking, can you, can you drink your cup? Can you with confidence and with hope and courage drink the cup? You see, spiritual health is, is not measured by how good you are. Rather, spiritual health comes from faithfully trusting in an ever-present, all-faithful God who will never leave you nor forsake you no matter what is in your cup. Can you accept the challenge to forsake all those things that would be a stronghold or that would, that would uh, uh, overpower you or, or wrap its, its fearful arms around you? Can you still trust in a God who is faithful, just as Jesus did. It is only then that you can become a reflection of the hope of God to those around you. Can you hold the cup of life in your hands? Can you lift it? And then can you drink it? That's what we're going to be unpacking over these next few weeks. Horatio Spafford may be a name that some of you have heard before. If you haven't heard that name, you've most certainly probably heard the song that he wrote, or rather the words to the song, It Is Well. It is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford, back in 1871, experienced two significant tragedies. His two-year-old son died. And then because of the great Chicago fire in 1871, he was financially ruined. Just two years later, because of that great fire that happened two years ago, he had business he had to attend to in Europe. And he decided he was going to go with his family, his wife and his four daughters. Now, he was held up in the United States, and he couldn't go right away, and so he sent his wife and his four girls ahead of him. And as his wife and four daughters are crossing the Atlantic Ocean, their ship collided with another ship, and all four of his daughters died. And when his wife got to shore, she sent a telegram to Horatio and all it said is saved alone. Horatio then, when he could, got on another ship and began to cross the Atlantic so that he could be with his grieving wife. And as he's going over the same part of the ocean where his daughters perished. 
he writes these words. Wind, peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea millows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know it is well it is well with my soul it is well with my soul it is well it is well with my soul I can't imagine But there have been times where sorrow has filled my cup and I've been left with the choice, am I going to follow Jesus into the garden or am I going to walk away? Am I going to hold on to the cup? Not throw it away, but hold on to it long enough in order to be able to see the joy in my sorrow? And then am I willing to lift it up and to say, this is who I am, this is where I'm at. I need you, Lord, and I need all of you. And together, together we can experience hope. And am I willing to drink it to its full, just as Jesus it's not easy to drink a cup that is full of joys and sorrows in our lives and we can't always get it down right away but God is faithful and he provided us a blueprint Jesus, His one and only Son, who gave His life. What I consider to be the most beautiful moment in Scripture is in John chapter 17 where Jesus, knowing what's to come, He prays for His disciples. He prays for the people that He has seen. And yet He still, he still is struggling and so consumed with the sorrow and the torment of knowing what's to come, 
But there's a moment that changes him. And it's when he prays this prayer. He says, Father, I want those you have given me. That's you and that's me. To be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so when he says to God, not my will, but your will be done, and God responds by saying, my will, Jesus went to the cross. And so we remember the sacrifice that he became that day how He obediently and lovingly sacrificed Himself. It wasn't done to Him because at any moment He could have snapped His fingers or said, stop! And it would have stopped. The only reason He stayed on that cross because He willfully stayed on the cross for you and for me. I want to invite the servers forward. And as they come forward, I want to let you know that if you are a, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you've decided to make Him the leader of your life and to follow Him, then the Bible says that you are safe. That you are a child of the Almighty God. You are my brother. You are my sister. And you don't have to be a member here. You don't have to be a frequent attender here. If you are a child of God, then we invite you to partake in communion with us. But together, we will celebrate and remember this sacrifice and to thank God for saving us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to invest in your word, to be challenged and inspired, Lord. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, not only today, but throughout this week, and that we would, as we grow closer to you, experience the beauty, the magnitude, the majesty of your presence as you draw close to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.